Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real-life behind-the-scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. I am so excited to welcome my friend and guest today, Heather. She is fantastic and has joined us on the show before. Today, we're continuing in our series on being normal, and we're talking specifically about how to be normal with our kids at home. Heather Toes is a registered clinical counselor who has a background working as a social worker in child protection, as well as working with adoptive families. She now specializes in working with kids and families and works from an attachment-based lens. Heather and I see the world in many similar ways, so you might hear a lot of similarities in how we approach things. Before we jump in, I wanna let you know that Heather also has an online program that is fantastic and a really, really great resource for families who have a child struggling with experiencing trauma. She has a program called the Trauma Attuned Parenting Program. And this program is designed for parents to learn how to be supportive therapeutic interveners in the lives of their kids while their kids are facing the impacts of trauma and the way that trauma shows up in their lives. So she has two versions of this program, one for general families in needs and another specifically attending to the needs of foster and adoptive families who face some unique challenges. I would really encourage you to go check it out if you have a child who has faced trauma in their life or if you serve families who face trauma um, for kids in their lives, I would really encourage you to have this as a resource that you can send to other families if this is a population that you work with quite commonly. I will link to her website in the show notes and you can find so much more information on her website. I'm so thankful for Heather joining me today. Let's jump in. Welcome, Heather. Thank you so much for being here again. It's always so much fun to have you on. I know that we always get to connect outside of this, and it's so fun to bridge some of the chats I know we get to have in other parts of our lives as clinicians to this, where we get to share it with other people who um, can maybe benefit from some of our fun chit chat and musings that we have in other spaces. So it's always good to have you. I am wondering if we can maybe start with having you share a little bit about yourself and the work you do and what led you into the work that you're doing. Um, I know that you've shared a bit on an episode we did before, but that was a while ago. So let's do a bit of a like recap. Sounds good. Well, uh, I'm I'm kind of somebody who like does something for a little while and then it's like, oh, but I want that job, right? So yeah. I guess you could say I, I started working as an EA in the school district and then I, I became a social worker after that. And uh, so I worked in the area of child protection and then um, after a burnout, <laughs> I mm. moved on into working in adoption guardianship work. And uh, from there, I discovered that I wanted to be more at the root of healing. And so I moved on into becoming a a therapist. And so got my master's in counseling psychology and uh, have been loving the work. And I work in private practice as well as I work as a clinician with child needs mental health. And yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things I love about having you on is that you, you have had all those different hats and that you, 
like, yes, you have this counselor clinician lens from the perspective of seeing others um, who work in this work and struggle in the different ways that we see people who work in this work do, but you've also been on the front lines, like you've been a child protection social worker and, and doing these pieces that are high risk for burnout and high exposure and and have lived some of the pieces that our audience ha- is living right now. Totally. I remember uh, a good friend of mine who, I re- when I was going through like one of my worst moments, um, she had said to me like, Heather, this is gold. <laughs> and wow. and I think that we have to remember that our experiences really shape us to who we are. And I don't think I would be the therapist I am today without all of those experiences proceeding. So yeah. I, I do really take that to heart. And thanks for, for saying that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it was a matter of like, oh, you just didn't do it all at once and get going right away. And I, and I think actually that's what maybe draws some people to me is because mm-hmm. of those experiences, it feels more authentic it feels more like oh no you actually know it's not just like book knowledge or whatever for sure for sure well and I think I mean this is a topic for a very different day (laughs) and one that we actually are hoping to tackle in the next couple of months here but one of the things I talk with a lot of first responders and frontline workers about is about having an escape hatch like and and to some extent, this actually is part of our topic today, that no one is actually physiologically, neurologically built to do the kind of work we're asking people to do when they're working in first response and frontline work. No one is is like wired to manage the degree of exposure well. And so one of the lies I think we tell people at the start of their career is that this is a really great 30-year career, when in reality, most of the people we know who have probably made it to 30 years probably aren't some of our favorite people because they have had to sacrifice some of their humanity to do the job for 30 years. And that trade-off for a lot of us just doesn't feel worth it. And so having alternatives and seeing ways that we can kind of escape hatch from the work when we have loved it, but maybe we recognize that it's time to move on from this piece of it is super valuable. So I think there's this really interesting piece of your story too, in kind of knowing where, where the escape hatch moments needed to be Mm -hmm. and being resourceful and finding alternatives that still lit you up and made you passionate and love the work you're doing in a different way, in a different context, and in a way that felt differently meaningful at the life stage that you were at at the time. Totally. And, you know, I always say when you get bored or you are having a hard time in your work, like there, if you have um, the the, the resources, you know, within yourself, um, you can create different ways of being even within the work that you're doing. And I think that's one of the things that kind of kept me afloat. I mean, I've been with the, with the ministry now for 17 plus coming up 18 years. And, um, and I didn't, not every time did I have that opportunity to change positions, but even within that position, I'd be like, Oh, you know what? I'm really, really feeling burnt out in this role. Is there something different that I can do? Because there's always, you know, uh, new things that you can take on, you know, like, oh, I want to be a group facilitator for a while. Or I'd really like to take up, you know, managing this piece. Or can I be the point person for that, that, um, you know, group that meets to talk about this issue, just to keep things fresh And uh, maybe pull you away from the thing that is draining you. And I know not every profession has that. um, But I know like in in policing, you know, you can move around in different positions, work with different population groups, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, in other areas, maybe if you're more senior worker, you can move into training or something like that. And so I, I really encourage people to not look at their job as such this like defined box. Totally. The box you get stuck Mm -hmm. in. Well, and I think, I mean, again, topic for a different day and all the escape hatch things, we'll circle back there someday. But today we're talking about how not normal the work is and how not normal the work can make us when we do it for any length of time. Um, 
And, and that's part of it, right? Like the work changes us. And I think I've said it a million times on the show that no one comes out unscathed, right? Like we're all Mm -hmm. impacted by the level of exposure that happens in first response and frontline work. It's hard not to be. Um, I feel like if if there is a person who has not been, they're a unicorn. Um, So (laughs) the reality is, is in this series, we're talking about how how we aren't wired for this work, how the work is a need that our society has, that people do these jobs, but that, that doesn't mean that anyone was actually built to do this kind of job, right? And so just because we have the need for someone who does this doesn't mean that any one person was made to do this well and hold it indefinitely. And the impact of that is that it shapes and changes us not only in our time at work, but also in all of these really meaningful parts of our lives outside of the work. And what I hear a lot from clients is kind of that like later end of their career. So those who did last, you know, 20, 25, 30 years, who look back with a lot of regret for how they they see the impact to their marriage, if they've continued to sustain one, That's often a big if. Many of them have had one, if not more, divorces. The impact on friendships, they're like retiring and they don't know who they're going to retire and hang out with because they haven't cultivated or they've absolutely decimated all of their friendships, their relationships with their kids, like all of these different, Mm -hmm. very significant parts of our lives that we are left to figure out what it means to us. And when it's when we're at that point in the timeline, it feels like it's too late. Like we're looking back with regret at how we wish we might have done it different. And I guess what I really hope for this episode is for us to figure out how we can chat about ways that we can do that differently so that we're not regretting the relationships we're cultivating specifically with our kids, because that's been so much of your work. So Given your work with kids and families and your own experience in frontline work and parenting, what do you see as the most common challenges for parents where either one or both parents are in some kind of emergency response work? Yeah, well, maybe I'll I'll share that. Um, I asked my husband for permission to share this. Um, my husband is a probation officer. And so yeah. our daughter had the joy <laughs> of growing up with uh, two parents that worked with populations that were challenging. And um, yeah. when I was chatting with him about this, um, this podcast that I was doing, he, he used the term like, well, we both had profession, have professions that are predicated on mistrust. And I thought like, oh my gosh, that is so true. And I think about so many professions, you know, whether it's based on mistrust or based on, um, you know, safety concerns or based on whatever, whatever your frontline work is, think about that overarching theme of what it is that you are always on alert for. And I think one of the things I wanted to talk about in this, um, with this question was around, um, like just the physiological kind of impact of this work. And so, you know, thinking about just from the, like, let's talk basics around like so many people who work shift work. Mm -hmm. And just when you say like, our bodies are not meant for this, like, are we really meant to work too on and too off? I mean, that wasn't my experience, obviously. I, uh, yeah. But I did have, you know, there were days uh, or times in my career where I did after hours work. And it's like, no, you're getting a call at 11 o'clock at night, right when you're going to bed. And you're yeah. going to be out till three o'clock in the morning out in Boston Bar. And then you got to go to work eight hours later. And so it's, you know, even the aspects of family life, that um, when you talk about like normal, like your kid starts to, you know, be or your kid is that kid who maybe doesn't get dropped off by their parent, who maybe doesn't get picked up or doesn't have you home in the evening to, you know, get their homework done and things like that. So just that like, uh, working with that unavailability that you have and really trying to balance the times that when you are available, it feels like you're constantly making up for mm-hmm. the things that yeah. you're not around for. Right. Um, so there's like so many practical ways that yeah. that shows up. 
Yeah. yeah. So the other thing physiologically that I was thinking about, there's this um, philosophy of or a theory around uh, around threat detection that mm-hmm. every second we scan our environment four times as to whether we are safe or not safe. When we work in an environment, like my husband says, predicated on mistrust, you know, we are constantly looking for signs of unsafety. And Mm -hmm. so we can't just turn that off. So when we now go into the world with our kids, we are, you know, um, you know, maybe we become the safety detector. Maybe we become the the person who's always critiquing and, you know, who our kids are hanging out with or what environments they're going into. And I'll talk about that a little bit later, but it can really turn into this overreacting to what's happening in our kids' lives or being overprotective, or we may become suspicious or worry about situations all the time. We may like be over asking our kids about, you know, questions, you know, just like, you know, about going on a sleepover or things like that. And then add in exhaustion, add in burnout factors, like how, you know, that idea of like, I can just turn it off at the end of the day and now I'm going to go and be with my kids. It's not like that. Yeah, right. totally. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the other things I see, I hear from a lot of parents who are on the front lines, and I actually feel this too, is... um like the need to numb. Like mm-hmm. I know in my own work, I, I t- what I say to my family is I've peopled all day. Like I've I've done the demands of everybody all day. And in my line of work, those demands are very intense um, and very personal and have very significant impacts, right? Like I'm dealing with a lot of highly suicidal clients. I'm like, there's just, it's a, it's a lot. And so to come home and particularly with kids, the ages that my kids are where they're, you know, like all over you and they want to be sitting Mm -hmm. on your lap and they're like in your face and there's no personal space or time, right? Like to come home, you kind of like tune out. And so I'll find myself sitting and my kid will be talking to me and I'm like, what (laughs) were you talking? (laughs) You know, like just the, like your brain is kind of fried at the end of all of that. And yet you're expected to show up and still parent and be present. And you want to be right. Like you want to be a participant in it. You want to feel like you're there. And yet you also kind of want to just check out. And so I think that's the other piece is like there's the vigilance that leads us into these like kind of overprotective things. But there's also this like numbing, disconnecting, dissociative kind of thing that takes us away from even just enjoying the parts of it that are good. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. even being a little bit further on the other side of, of parenting here, my daughter is 23 And uh, I still encounter that because it's like, I so desperately want to connect with my kid. And yet, you know, I've got clients from six to nine at night after I've worked a full shift at my other job and my daughter gets off at five 30 and sometimes a little bit later. And so I've got this tiny little window to connect Mm -hmm. with her. And then I, or I've got nine o'clock at night when she's exhausted and she's getting ready for bed. And so even just that, like, and then, and then trying to turn myself on for those moments. And sometimes my daughter will be like, uh, you know, she'll text me or whatever instead. And she, I think recently even, she's just like, oh, are you just relaxing? Are you watching TV? <laughs> I'm just like, yep, <laughs> that's what I'm yep, doing. Like, where I'm at. Totally. And, and you're right. It's a zone out, right? Yeah. And and, and I do feel guilty sometimes for like conversations that I'm having after a full day of therapy therapy. And, you know, just even last night I was talking to my mom and, and I kind of hit my wall of like, okay, I have talked all day already and I've had, you know, seven sessions today and taking care of this and whatever. And I got my dog who's like injured right now. And it's like the mm-hmm. added, any, any little layer of added stress just like compounds and, and is one of my yeah. clients, my client uses the term, like, I just don't have the bandwidth. <laughs> you yes. know? 
like is just not there. And so I get it. Like just that, that coming to that point of just needing to numb out. And the other point I wanted to add, it was just like, you know, even that idea of like, do you know how, like, and this is where you really have to check yourself because, you know, I, I imagine just, I remember with my, my child being younger, like, you know, like, do you know how unimportant this is? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> in I know the this is the biggest what... thing in your life. <laughs> and, and just having to remember like, no, 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 this is the most important thing for her right now. Totally. Like, you know, and so, and yet having to like, just like, do you know, I did a removal today? Or do you know, I talked to somebody off the ledge today? Or do you know, I, you know, and, and add yeah. in all the many things that, that, that our frontline workers are, are doing. And it's, yeah. it's, it, yeah, the importance level is like minuscule yeah. in comparison And yet it is exponential to our kids. Well, and it's this interesting thing we ask of ourselves, right? Because we, (laughs) we don't want them to know, right? Like we don't want our families to know the really dark realities of the world that we see because it's yucky. And we would wish to like, part of the reason I think so many of us do this kind of work is because we long to make the world better so that our kids don't have to see some of those things or be confronted by some of these pieces being real in the world. So we want to guard and protect. And yet at the same time, we do have that feeling that's like, don't you know (laughs) that this is what (laughs) I did today? Like, (laughs) and it is, it's this very weird balancing act. And it's funny because I think it leads us into the next question that I had, which is that like, we know that over time, the impact of working in first response or frontline work gradually shifts a person's perspective where the intensity of emergency response starts to feel more and more normal. And then normal life starts to feel like boring or disconnected or uncomfortable or foreign. And so I guess I'm curious, how do you see this play out in terms of parenting and trying to parent from a healthy place? Because it does lead us into these places where we feel that like, well, don't you know what I did today? Or that tuned out kind of numb disconnected because I I've been through so much today or even just like that feeling of your problems are so small relative to what is happening in this very real world that I was just immersed in. And now I'm in this like white picket fenced home where nothing kind of makes sense to my brain because it's so disconnected from the reality I've just lived. Yeah. And I think I I think a lot of that stems back to kind of that adrenaline that comes with many of our jobs. Right. And, and even um, uh, I was thinking about, I was thinking about this in the context of like, when I'm in the room with a client, like, I'm helping. I'm, you know, like there's this, like, you know, at least I hope I'm I'm doing it, (laughs) you know, but there's this, or, you know, when you're doing, you know, you're leading meetings or you're, uh, you know, you're the first response, you're the one that's going to go and rescue this person. Like, you know, there's this level of importance that you give to it. And when you go out and back into your normal life, you're like, what does this even matter? Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, it's about like that, the, yeah, those everyday tasks become so mundane. Like, and I don't know, like, I don't know, like clearly we can't live in that adrenaline all the time. Um, yeah. But the, that comparison um, perhaps is part of the problem, right? Yeah. Um, this, this idea also that the mundane is not important. <laughs> you know, Uh, is, is problematic because I, uh, the mundane is actually where our kids develop that template of the world and, mm. and of security. And it's in the bedtime routine. It's in the, you know, having, you know, a meal made for them or caregiving for them in, in the smallest of ways, you know, by putting a little, you know, note in their lunch or, you know, um, helping them tie their shoes, whatever developmental stage you're at, it's that responsiveness of us as parents to them that, that creates that sense of safety 
which is what we want, but we are sometimes looking at it from such a literal perspective when we're dealing with kind of crisis all the time that we can forget that that is actually, the mundane is actually the most important. And so switching that idea from mundane to like, like I think we sometimes have to be, as first responders, have to be much more intentional about that time with our kids, which yeah, can be boring sometimes, you know, um, I, I, I work with, um, some nurses and, you know, everyday life, like it is, it's not exciting for them. And it's, it feels, um, like, like there's discontent there and it's not because it's terrible. In fact, they feel terrible, even, you know, acknowledging that it feels that way to them because they know how good it is. Like you said, the white picket fence, like I get to come home and I'm secure. I, you know, I know that I've got this great family here and so on. Um, But it just doesn't feel exciting anymore or anymore or exciting at all. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, I think it does. I think it's really just the naming the ways that this shows up, right? Like, I think a lot of the people I see when I first start seeing them will talk with a lot of shame about how they are at home, right? And how they Mm -hmm. feel about being at home, right? That it feels like I don't kind of know how I fit when I'm with my family, or if I am with my family, Mm -hmm. I know that I fit in very like practical ways, but I don't always feel like I am connected to some of what's going on or that I, I feel it when I'm in it um, or that I feel the way I'm supposed to feel when I'm in it. And I think so much of that is the like kind of hypervigilant brain that is thinking about so many other, maybe that risk scanning kind of piece in certain environments or the part of my brain that has been on risk scanning so much today that it's now in dissociative disconnect Mm -hmm. mode. And so it's just this kind of, I think it's important and valuable that we name that this is really common for people who do this kind of work. And that even you and I who are trained in how to be present and mindful and all of the good and wonderful things also wrestle with some of this because the reality is, is that high demand work demands a lot of us and that it leaves us with only what resources we have ensured that we've sustained. And so it's this like very tricky mathematical equation of how do we not let the work take more from us, leaving us less to do the things that are actually the real parts of our lives. Oh, so good. So good. And I think about, you know, um, as I've worked with uh, first responders uh, and frontline workers, like that idea of like, we you know, we invest so much into, you know, how we are with, you know, with the people that we work with, or with the populations we work with, that um, I know what I encounter a lot with, with folks is that guilt that when we come home, like, oh my gosh, do you know, like, I had to do like some major, like, you know, uh, crisis negotiation today, or I had to, um, you know, counsel somebody who was, completely falling apart or, you know, I had to whatever, talk down whatever situation. And then here I am in front of my family and I've got all of these skills. And do you think I can use them? Right. Like, <laughs> right? like it's just uh, like, and, oh and my gosh, I, true story. And I've, you know, I work a lot with parents whose kids are, are, are struggling, you know, with mental health or with behavioral concerns or things like that. And, uh, and those parents who are, you know, skilled people in their professions can still be falling apart as parents. I mean, we know this as therapists. I mean, we come across people all the time, you know, our our colleagues who have gone through divorces, who are struggling with their own kids' mental health, who are struggling with their own mental health. And yet we still go every day and do this work and probably potentially do it really well, but can't apply it to ourselves. And I think that can be, really devastating to to folks to recognize that oh I'm struggling and Mm -hmm. I think it's just another reason why it's so important to care for ourselves and you know not think you have it all together all the time right or have to have it 
Yeah. Well, and I think yeah. I was about to say, I think there's also this piece of like kind of knowing the balance. So I think it's valuable that we're naming that this is common and that it, it it's almost impossible. Like I have said earlier that no one comes out unscathed from the work. That also means that no one comes out unscathed in our families. Like the work will inevitably and invariably touch our families. It will affect our families. Now that can include negative ways that it distances us or disconnects us or um, makes us more um, helicopter parenty perhaps, or, you know, a bit more controlling of certain kinds of environments or things like that Mm -hmm. because we've seen too much. But there's also pieces of it that can be really valuable. I think my kids are far more empathic kids than the average kids their ages because we talk a lot about feelings in our house. We talk a lot about risk factors in our house. We talk a lot about contextualizing what other people's lives might be like. I was like the most proud therapist mama ever when my two and a half year old said, I feel ho flustawated. And that was like one of his first multi-syllable words. And I was like, oh my God, I've, I've, I've done it. I've achieved it. I am the best parent. Um, and then it went downhill from there. But it was like a very, <laughs> you know, it was one of those moments where I was like, I'm, I'm doing something right. You have language for how you feel. It's good. But, you oh. know, like, I think there's this this really important thing for us to name, too, which is that while there are negative consequences that we need to be conscientious of, there's also value our work brings to the kinds of families we're shaping And we need to hold the tension that there's both. And I want to make sure that we're not just like trashing on people who are doing the best they can and who are parenting in the best ways they know how and who probably in a lot of ways are winning it with their kids. But at the same time, and I guess I want us to kind of dig into this piece a little bit, like what are your thoughts about how some of the really vigilant, highly protective, sometimes overly controlling efforts we engage in because we can't unsee what we've seen? How do you think that shapes the relationships kids have with their parents? So you're talking the good and the bad, right? <laughs> Let's try. Let's try for okay. both. <laughs> I, you know, I, this is something that's come up in our household so much. Um, my husband, once upon a time in his work, worked with uh, sex offenders. Yeah. And um, so he was hyper aware of, you know, where those folks were, you know, kind of even in the community, you know, who they were as far as like, you know, this is like your neighbor. This is like, not literally necessarily, but, but they're not people that you would necessarily like pick out. And so, so that idea of like our, say our 12 year old going to the mall was like, whoa, I'm not sure I'm okay with this, you know, and, uh, or even like as a family, you know, we used to go to the food court, you know, at the mall for, you know, after, uh, after church on Sunday or something like that. And it'd be like, oh, there's, you know, like, uh, you know, you just see him like kind of turning his head and, you know, he's probably seen somebody from work and he doesn't want that person to see him with his child and his family because that he, that just feels like a risk. And then, you know, for me, what it was, was that so much of, um, you know, things, normal things that kids do, like wanting to go on play dates or going to a sleepover or something or going to like a birthday party. You know, I remember one time our, our daughter wanting to go to this play date and, you know, I checked in and like, okay, we have all of these arrangements and then um, my, do- uh, my daughter gets dropped off, I think, with another friend this particular time. And it's like the 13-year-old sister who I know mm-hmm. has struggles who's going to be the one caring. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the parents aren't home as, as was arranged. And it was like, yeah, this isn't going to be okay with me. Like, yeah. and, and we ended up having the kids picked up because it wasn't yeah. okay with us. It wasn't cleared with us. But the other thing is like, you know, sleepovers were such a huge issue because in my mind, I'm like, okay, is there an older brother? 
Is there some right. weird uncle that's at the house is like, yeah. okay, I'm not allowed to do a prior contact check. And I can't, <laughs> you know, like it was <laughs> the perfect, I can't cross that professional boundary yes. as much as I want to, you know, I'm sure we have police officers that want to like check for yes. the, 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 oh, their totally. daughter's new boyfriend or whatever. And it's like, I can't do that. And yet I think that in throughout all of that, I do feel like I instilled a level of anxiety in my child. Mm. And that's where like, I think we are at risk with kind of like all of the questions that we ask, we are triggering them to be like, oh, this might not be okay. Or, oh, I should be more cautious or, oh, there might be danger um, and, and so it can lead our kids to being more anxious about situations. And that's definitely what happened in our household. And yet I'm not sure what I could have done. I'm well, like I'm, there's always something I could have done differently, but I'm not sure I could have done that differently given where I was at in my career. Um, as far as the positive aspects of it, like, I do think that I, I, you know, my daughter now lives in downtown Vancouver and I, I feel like I can trust her gut in situations. Mm -hmm. Like she knows how to keep herself safe. She knows, um, kind of like what, what is a wise move as far as like, you know, where she's going to walk and things like mm -hmm. that. And and so I think that there is, and maybe some of that comes from anxiety, but maybe some of that comes from just wisdom that she has gained from, from things that we've talked about in our household. Totally. Yeah. I think there's a lot of pieces at our house. Um, my husband and I are opposite in a lot of ways, but, but I do the work I do. And so I hear about everybody else's experiences of risk all day long and how it's had traumatic impact for them. And he is a musician and like just is lives in this bubble where aside from what he sees on the news, bad things don't really happen. Um, and so it's interesting because he is far more risk taking than I am just as a human um, and he encourages far more risk taking in our kids than I ever feel comfortable with. And so we have a lot of these like negotiation moments, which in, in a lot of ways I'm thankful for. They're uncomfortable. They're not my favorite moments in the moment, but I'm thankful for the reminder from a person who's not in this, that not all of life is awful every minute, right? So like I will be threat scanning in lots of different ways in a scenario and when I, like, he can see it in me. He can see me looking and, and tracking and and he'll see me, you know, hey, kids, careful of this and, and careful of that. And, <laughs> but, but, but what about this? And what about that? Um, and he's really good at kind of challenging that in me and, and saying, like, some amount of this is fair. Some amount of this is okay. But you're scaring them. <laughs> like, you're making this, <laughs> you're making a family bike ride very stressful, right? Like I'm very conscientious of like, but the cars and do I trust that my kids won't kind of jet out in traffic? Not really. And, you know, those kinds of things. And he's like, we do this all the time. You're just not here and it's fine. And we've all lived <laughs> like it's okay. They're, they're better at this than you think they are. Trust them. And so I found it really helpful to have kind of that, that anchoring piece that says, okay, so I, have a bit more anxiety about this than is probably reasonable given the situation because I'm anticipating the worst cases because I hear so much about the worst cases. My exposure is all day, every day, the result of the worst cases. That's what I do. The worst case is not 95% of the cases. <laughs> so how do I scale what I am thinking and feeling and and kind of channel what my reactions are to my kids and how I direct my kids about it in ways that are kind of like more tailored to probably what 95% of the outcome is likely to be instead of this itty bitty piece that my brain is conscientious of while still letting that inform some amount of the process. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's exhausting, <laughs> but it it's also exhausting. valuable. 
It is absolutely valuable because when I think about it, I, I, I think, you know, one example that kind of jumps out at me is, uh, and this might seem kind of lame in the context of things, but it was kind of the beginning of us really teaching our daughter to be a critical thinker. And she had gone to a friend's house and it's funny, her and I tell this story differently, but I'll tell it my version. Yeah, yeah. she'll never know. <laughs> yeah. No, she'll probably listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a fun phone call later. she's a good kid. <laughs> so anyway, so she goes to a friend's house and while she's at her friend's house, uh, there's a movie presented to her. And the movie is a scary movie and she has a tendency towards having nightmares. And so, um, she, this is right about, about the time when she got a cell phone and she starts texting us <clears throat> and the text is like, do you think this movie is okay to watch? Do you think that one would be okay to watch? Oh, I don't know if I should watch this one. And I'm not sure if she was looking for us because she knew that it was too scary. She was looking for us to say no, but at a certain mm -hmm. point there grew this frustration in us, like, why do you keep asking us? Like, you know, we would say no to that or whatever. Mm -hmm. So at a certain point, I was like, you now have a cell phone, you can Google what this rate, what the rating for this movie is, and make your decision, you know, based on that. And when she came home, it was this conversation of like, you know, we trust you to make a decision yeah. that is based on she's like, you mean I could have watched that movie? <laughs> and, and it was just this like, you know, it was us starting. And this is where I think as, you know, we have to trust that all of those conversations we've had about risk, about um, bad things that happen in the world, because I think we can't necessarily avoid that. As yeah. parents, I think we, we need to do it at a developmentally appropriate level for our kids. But I think in order to maintain our own sanity, we have to educate our kids to some level. But at some point, we have to, we have to trust that we've taught them to yeah. be able to assess risk for themselves. Absolutely. And that's the piece that's starting to let go. I mean, that's the whole idea of like individuation with, you know, our, mm -hmm. our young people becoming adults, you know, that they have to now be able to trust themselves. And I always talk about how like we want our kid to carry a little voice of ours in their head at all times. Like, what would my mom think yeah. if I did that? Or what would my dad mm -hmm. think about this? And that's what we're instilling. We don't actually literally need to be there every moment saying, don't, don't drive into the road, into traffic. Like, you know, it's like, no, we have taught them because we were along with them and we modeled for them and we showed them how, how to do proper safety checks before they would, you know, make a turn or go, you know, walk their bike across the crosswalk. And we have to trust that in ourselves totally. that we've done that job, that work already. I think one of the other things that I anchor to is, I mean, for sure there's situations where, you know, like death, critical injury, abduction, like these are things that I- Yeah, let's not talk to them. <laughs> but like shelf that for a second. Yeah. When we're talking about like experiences that we fear might have negative impact for our kids, I think one of the things that I find weirdly reassuring um, is some of the research around PTSD and that you know, 90% of the time when someone's exposed to trauma, they won't develop PTSD symptoms. It's actually a very small percentage. The percentage that does develop PTSD, there's common factors among them. And it's often things like, you know, repeated exposure to multiple traumatic experiences, which is why first responders and frontline workers are more prone to PTSD is because they experience the accumulation of exposure. It's also things like age of onset, which for kids is obviously the more tricky area. But what we know about kids who've experienced trauma is that their rates of PTSD are significantly lower if they come back to a safe place that they trust where they can share and have that be believed and cared for right? Like that's our mitigating factor for kids being exposed to things that could be negatively impactful for them. And so I think it's this piece in my head of, you know, I recognize that I can't, I can't screen every human my kids are going to interact with. I can't prevent every bad thing from happening. 
I do want my kids to be able to experience parts of life like a sleepover. And I don't think my fears should outweigh their ability to perhaps have access to that if I can mitigate it to the best of my ability. But again, to the best of my ability and my ability is going to be limited. I can't control all the factors and all of the possible potential things that could happen. But can I trust that at the end of the day, I have built a context where they feel safe to come home and be like, oh my gosh, did you know that this thing happened? And that they wouldn't even think twice about sharing it. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've built a context where my kids understand that secret keeping is not a thing, right? Like, have I invested in creating protective factors for my kids that would help them to be resilient to hard things that may happen down the road, even when we tried all of the best ways to protect them from them happening to begin with? And I feel very confident that our family has worked really intentionally at that. And I guess that would be the piece I would encourage for a lot of other families is how do you focus less on controlling a whole bunch of variables you don't have control over? And how do you anchor more of your energy towards cultivating like really connective relationships with your kids that make you the safe place, that make you the cushion to land? Because it's the far more proactive, protective feature that we can give. We cannot control the world. We cannot bubble wrap them. Absolutely. And I think, I think a lot of that comes like that safety of being able to talk about anything comes from us normalizing talking about things, not in a glorified, you know, like, let's tell the the details of whatever happened, but just that, you know what, hard things happen for people out there. And there's places people can go and get help. There's people, there's people that are going to step in and support Um, there. You know, I remember having conversations around addiction when our daughter was seven and some people are like, Oh, seven, isn't that too young? And I'm like, but we're talking about it in a developmentally appropriate way. And yeah. so we have, we have created, you know, and I, and I remember our daughter coming in to, and talking to us about different issues her friend, her friends were having and so on over the years. Yeah. And, and again, like you, you say like, you know, this creates really, you know, if we speak at it, from a compassionate place. And I think that that is also, you know, can be problematic in kind of that frontline work is that we can kind of become cynical or bitter, you know, about things that we encounter in our work. And so always kind of coming back to a place of compassion, you know, not talking about um, the addict, but talking about the problem of addiction. And, Mm. and I think that's where, you know, my husband and I, I feel like we did a good job in, in kind of creating that atmosphere of empathy um, for the issues that we encounter and, and always that idea of like with trauma, you know, um, you know, hurt people, hurt people. (laughs) And, uh, and with trauma, you know, there's always a, there's a story underneath why, you know, these things happen. And so, yeah, just creating openness, creating that line of communication and, uh, without doing the vicarious trauma piece to our, to our children. That's the balance. That's the fine thread that we, we have to work with. It is a fine thread. I wonder, um, just recognizing our time. Mm -hmm. I know that we talked a lot in the last episode we did together and I'll link to it in the show notes. If anyone didn't listen to it and wants to go back to it, we talked in the last episode we did together about kind of present parenting, how to, how -hmm. to come down off the day and kind of adjust our mentality from being in my work hat to being in my home hat so that we can be a bit more quote unquote normal with our kids when we're with them. And so I value that today's topic, we've kind of gone into more the um, almost philosophically how we show up as parents and how Mm -hmm. we choose to bridge what we learn and see and know about in our work into our homes in ways that feel um, meaningful and age appropriate and conscientious and intentional. Um, I do wonder if there's any other pieces, like any other additional thoughts you have that you think would be of value to those who are listening or even resources you might recommend for those who want to invest further in growing like meaningful, healthful connections with their kids. Because I think that working past that disconnect or that dissociative thing, working past the hyper-protective controlling thing is hard and it's probably not going to be 
you know, suddenly and magically changed from having listened to the two of us. Um, although mm-hmm. I hope it maybe like puts a spotlight on a bit of a, oh man, maybe that's the thing I should spend some time putting some different work into in my own life. Where or how would you suggest that people can make some steps in that direction? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest things, and I think I talked about this in the last episode that I did with you is around creating rituals of disconnection from, from our, from our work. And I know how hard that is. And, and um, I think I talked about, you know, maybe even having, allowing yourself, you know, five, 10 minutes to kind of like vent to your partner. If, if, if you have a partner or a friend or somebody at work before you kind of enter back into that, into the home and I, I actually, uh, I remember when uh, one client I worked with, we created a ritual of, um, uh, it, I do a lot of EMDR work. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so we have a container. It's like a visual representation of this place where we can kind of put our worries that we can, we ha- we can do yeah. nothing about these things right now. You know, we recognize that they're important, that they, you know, they, they carry some weight with it, but carrying that weight into the next thing that we're going to do is just not productive. And so this, this particular client had these three jerry cans, uh, like gas cans in her yeah. garage, just as she was like driving in. And she visually, as she drove into the garage, she visually put in all the things of the day into those jerry cans so that she could go into her home and be present with her family. And yeah. it was just like, you know, I, I don't think it always has to be, you know, like you need to spend, I mean, I know this is one of the suggestions I gave, like spend five minutes in your car, mm-hmm. you know, maybe take care of those emails or that, you know, banking thing that you need to do or whatever. That's not a terrible idea, but just so that when you go in, you can be present. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, rituals of connection, of connecting, like, you know, rather than like, oh, I got to, you know, I mean, I think about like during COVID and, you know, particularly at the beginning with all the the caution around like, okay, when I come home, I need to strip down in the laundry room and yes. I need to change out my clothes. I need to go have a shower before I can connect with any anyone like, you know that I can't even imagine the weight that that those healthcare workers were were experiencing of like yeah. even my presence is going to be a risk to my family. Yes. Um but thinking about like what can we do to kind of like you know create that that boundary of like this is where I leave work out. And I know that sounds so like like really <laughs> like is that yeah. even possible? But um, but we really have to almost like change hats before we kind of re-enter our family's life. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I think also this idea of like creating intentional time with our kids, of like putting down that phone of, you know, um, I do a lot of like child-led play. Uh, I introduced mm-hmm. the concept of child-led play of just like, you know what, we, we sometimes have in our head, like, okay, I need to be present for this entire hour and child-led play. We actually say, you know what, 10 minutes a day. Right. And so take this load off of yourself. Like, I think I heard, um, I heard uh, a percentage that we have to be 20% attuned to our children to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And that means like, it's okay if the other 80% of the time, I mean, like, that's like, that's a huge yeah. weight off. It's like, if I can be attuned to my child for, or my partner for 20, uh, for 20% of the time, that's yeah. what really is going to make that difference. And so take that pressure off yourself that you have to be this super parent. Mm-hmm. And remember, again, those mundane moments are the moments in which we build con- connection. That means when your child approaches you with an issue they've had at school, like put the phone down, turn the TV off, be present for that five minutes or 10 minutes that they need to talk through that thing. And then you can go back to your numbing out. Right. But, but really like it's about intentionality. And, Mm -hmm. and I know that I, you know, sometimes I teach, I I teach mindfulness. I I work with a lot of um, parents with young children and uh, my mindfulness sometimes actually it was funny because I taught this to one of my clients and then she's like, uh, it's basically mindfully doing one thing. Mm-hmm. And she's, and I said, you know what, just mindfully change your baby's diaper. 
Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, I really went into it. I was mindfully changing my daughter's diaper and, you know, just trying to really be present with her little face and, you know, moving yeah. her toes around and just, you know, like, and it was so beautiful. And then my toddler comes into the picture and they're grabbing the dirty diaper and they're, you know, like, it's just, it's <laughs> after. and hey, so uh... again, yeah, giving yourself grace that your moments, especially with younger families are going to be shorter. They're going to be briefer. And, um, but just mindfully being present and whether that's, you know, mindfully being present with yourself, you know, maybe, uh, I, 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 I tell my clients, I'm a lazy, I'm a lazy meditator, (laughs) which means that, which means that when I do a meditation, so I go onto my insight timer app and I pick Mm -hmm. anything that's five minutes or shorter, because I know that that's my attention span to be able to do that. And I also know that that is meaningful. And so again, like small, create small windows of connection. You don't have to be present and on hundred percent of the time when you're home. Um, But, but, you know, giving yourself grace to, to have those moments can be enough. I love, I love that. I want to add one piece because I think this has Mm -hmm. been like the lifesaver in my own parenting life is parent led play. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have found, especially my daughter, my son is a little bit older and is a bit more like self-motivated in his play. Um, my daughter really wants to play with me. And so like, I will walk in the door, she will be on my front porch waiting and yelling like, mommy, will you play with me? (laughs) Like she's chomping at the bit. And if I let her choose the play, we would be playing school or kitchen forever which I don't mind doing some of the time, but it's not my, like the imaginary scenic play is not my strength. So I say yes to it at, at times where I feel like I can, I can do it and I can do it not begrudgingly. Um, but if I know that I am, I've had a, a hard day and I am not going to be my best self in that play, I will nip it in the bud. So she usually doesn't open with, will you play kitchen with me? She usually opens with, will you play with me? And I will open with, I would love to do a puzzle with you, or I would love to color with you. Those are two of the things that I have capacity to do forever. And it like, I could do it all day long and it would be okay for me. And she loves it. Right. And as long as we're doing it together, she's like all in. And so we'll put on, you know, Frozen soundtrack and we'll be in my living room coloring. And she thinks this is the greatest thing ever. I pull out my like adult coloring books that she loves because they're special and she gets to color in them. And it's the greatest. And I think it's it's if I had left it up to her to say kitchen play, I might say no. Because I'm not in a place where I have the energy to bring to that kind of play. But if I can intervene in it, I have the ability to shape the play in a way that it's better than nothing. Right? I love it. I love it. And I think that's part of it is like us finding our own areas where we feel strong in our capacity to engage with our kids. And it's not an every time thing. I'm not never going to play kitchen ever again and always try to deflect her into puzzles or coloring. But if it means that we get to connect, it's a better space than not. Yeah. Well, and I want to add just one more thing around, you know, those really busy parents. I'm thinking about like, you know, single parents coming home to all of the things that still need to be done like invite your child into doing those things with you, right? Because really it's all about time. It's all about being with. And if you can, you know, have them safely chop vegetables or break up the lettuce or whatever um, for dinner and chat about the day, like that connecting time is, is just as meaningful. Totally. I know that we've had a lot of um, when when there's busy days and a lot of people go in lots of different places and whatever, it's a functional necessity. Like we just have to be overlapping in things. And so even if I want to get a workout in, it'll look like me doing yoga with my daughter and she got a yoga mat for Christmas because that's how frequently she's joining me for yoga. 
Um, and it's only 10 or 15 minutes and it's mostly her falling down, but she thinks it's the greatest. <laughs> she thinks she's in on this grown up activity. And it, and to her, it's like the best. And to me, it's like adorable and really fun. And I still get what I need out of it. Right. So it's kind of this space of like, how do we, how do we not limit ourselves in our thinking to believing that to connect with our kids only looks this mm-hmm. one way? And give ourselves the capacity to find just moments of connection because they all additively mean something. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks, Heather. This has been a yes, really Yes, always time. my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. All right. We'll talk to you soon. I want to say one more big thank you to Heather for joining me today, and I hope that you guys got something really meaningful out of our conversation about how to be more normal with our kids at home. As we wrap up today, I want to remind you to please reach out and connect if you have any questions or feedback. You know I love hearing from you and shaping this podcast to echo your needs and interests. I love hearing about what you're working on and how you're using what we talk about on the show. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss, where you can follow me or tag me, or you can email me at support at thrive-life.ca. I'm grateful that many of you are keen to share about Behind the Line and spread the word to others on the front lines. Know that we can be found online on our website, on most major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. Click subscribe to get alerts about our latest episodes or subscribe to our email list to hear from me about all the exciting things we have going on and coming up. You'll find all the details you need in the show notes, along with links to our Beating the Breaking Point Indicators Checklist and Triage Guide to help facilitate self-assessing burnout and related concerns. We make all of this available to you because the work you do matters, but more than that, you matter. And we want to make sure that you have what you need to keep up the good work at work, as well as in your real life outside of the work. So use it and share it. And until next time, stay safe.